You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 8th of February. And on the programme today, we discussed a new law that could see pupils facing fines of up to 200,000 dirhams if they're caught cheating before during or after their exams. We discussed those penalties with global cheating and academic integrity expert Dr Zenith Khan and also with education consultant Fiona McKenzie. Meanwhile, several major global cruise companies are rerouting or even cancelling voyages through the Red Sea due to the rising tensions. We will get into the details of that with GCC expert Daniel Essex. Plus, Pakistan goes to the polls today with tens of millions due to vote. Will it be free and fair? Who is likely to win? We found out with local lawyer Osama Malik. And with half-term fast approaching and most pupils getting a week off, we discussed the travel trends this February. Could you still get away if you wanted to? We talked about options with travel agent Ben Murta. And speaking of holidays, 480 million trips are due to be made in China over the next month. That's as people head home for the Lunar New Year but snowstorms are causing problems. We heard more with academic Ina Tangan in Beijing. Hello, hello. Welcome back to The Agenda. Now, if you cheat in your exams in the United Arab Emirates, you could now face some pretty hefty fines of 200,000 dirhams. And it's not just pupils, parents and teachers who print, publish, promote, transmit or leak information, I obviously read that out, um, related to questions, could also face the same penalties. Um, Also impersonating student, that's illegal, which you would expect it to be, but obviously it now faces these serious penalties, as is modifying answers or changing the grades that students have been awarded. Now, It's not just the fine situation, because if you're convicted, the perpetrator may also be ordered to do community service for up to six months. And that can be as an added penalty or in the place of the fine. Now, no one likes cheating. You know, it spoils the sort of whole, you know, breaks the trust, ruins the whole system, breaks the system. Um, But these feel like really hefty punishments. Um, And so we wanted to find out whether they were globally, you know, typical globally and why they might have been introduced. So let's discuss them. I'm very lucky to be joined in the studio by a cheating expert. That sounds wrong, but we know what we mean. Um, Zenith Khan. She's a board member at the European Network for Academic Integrity and also a champion in AI ethics and academic Integrity. It's great pleasure to have you join us, Sinath. How are you? Thank you. It's really great to be back. Georgia. Yeah, lovely. You've been on the business breakfast before. We're just saying the last yeah. time you were on the agenda was more than 10 years ago. So yes. it's good to hear. On similar topics. Similar <laughs> topics, I can imagine. Exactly. Um, okay, so let's start with these fines. Are, right. uh, do you welcome them as, you know, an academic, uh, as an expert in academic integrity? Is this something that you'd like, you know, that you're pleased to see that you'd like to see more of? 
I think um, we need to understand uh, the context of why such a law would be passed. And I think it's more preemptive and proactive an effort from the UAE uh, governance. Uh, and I think that's what is really appreciated and welcomed uh, because it sends a very strong positive message that we value quality of education because without upholding integrity, we cannot ensure accessibility and inclusiveness in education. If a couple of students in the class are getting away with cheating where the rest of them are making the effort, that's automatically putting them at a huge advantage, unfair advantage compared to the rest of the students. So, so I think that's the message that we need to really understand that they're saying there's zero tolerance for any kind of um, misconduct that is going to create that kind of inequality in classrooms. So your feel is that, is that it's preemptive rather than reactive. So you don't yes. think that we've got a widespread problem in schools and universities here. Right. Um, no, I don't. <laughs> That's good. That's a good thing because you could have said the opposite. But I, I'll tell you why as well, because I think every generation of teachers have said, oh, my God, we are seeing such an increase in the number of students cheating. But when you actually go back and look at the actual research and statistics, it's pretty much around 60 to 75 percent. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. 60 to 75 percent of, yes. of pupils cheat? That who are self-reporting that they have cheated so, at one point. So way more of them. I mean, that's, that means basically everyone's done it, potentially. Well, um, the International Center for Academic Integrity released some longitudinal study data, which said about 95% of students have agreed um, they, cheat, they did some form of cheating in their entire life. Okay, I suppose over, yeah. uh, you know, over 15, 15 years of years. education, yes. if you glanced over at your mates some when you were yes. five... Less so of a big you have deal. To, yeah, you have to take that percentage with a pinch of salt. Yes. But what's interesting to uh, know is research has shown that even from this 60 to 75 percent, only 2 percent are actually maliciously cheating. That means they are fully intending to cheat. So irrespective of what you wanted to do to help students, to deter students, those students would still cheat. And that's just 2 percent. So that's a okay. good number. <laughs> that is a much better number. Yes. Yeah. So other people are just sort of slightly falling into it. So what happens is um, sometimes it's a systemic problem. The way we are setting up our education system, the way we are emphasizing on grades and marks rather than promoting the process and celebrating the effort. Right. Um, it could be something like that. It could be parental pressure. Uh, oh, you have to get a certain grade irrespective of what kind of a student you are, what your interest is. Uh, if you get, if you're get forced into taking a degree that you're not interested in, get, studying something that, that just does not, you know, make that bulb go on in your head, you're going to start looking for shortcuts and opportunities to still manage that grade, which is so important. So I think a lot of times students are ending up cheating because they don't understand the instruction, maybe. Um, they've not been given clear uh, explanation of a concept. Or, or um, what we have also seen from the center, for instance, a study that, ha that we had done on parental involvement. In schools, parents are so overwhelmingly involved, they don't realize that they have crossed the line of ethical responsibility. Ah, so helping with homework can easily veer into yes. doing So homework. imagine a six-year-old child who is told to make a desert diorama. Oh, I've seen some of those. Who's really making that diorama? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the mom or the dad or the nanny or any of, any of the adults in that family. Yes. But the child then takes that diorama to class for show and tell and says, here's my diorama. So what we've effectively taught the child is you can take credit for work done for you by someone else.
That is very interesting. We have had the desert diorama <laughs> incident. Fortunately, he was about eight or nine when we did it. But nevertheless, I, I definitely assisted quite strongly. Shall we go and get the animals from your animal box? Shall we get sand from outdoors? <laughs> yeah. Let's paint this bit blue. You basically did it. I, I, I mean, it was yes. a crowd felt very creative by the end of it. Um, can I ask, uh, So it, okay, so if it's not uh, reactive, this this these massive penalties, if it's proactive, why now? Uh, I mean, I'm guessing that AI is on everyone's mind. I think so. And um, if you've seen the trajectory, especially after post-pandemic, um, where we actually did have to use online technologies a lot, uh, I think students also got exposed to different types of technologies that were out there that they may not have thought of to use, right? So plus with, of course, the generative AI booming the way it did last year. I think that is something that needed uh, needs still a lot more clarity, a lot more framework, guidelines, examples, specific examples on how students can and cannot use them, how, uh, how teachers can and cannot use them, etc. So I think because there is a global movement around discussion around, you know, what next, how do we, how do how do we look at assessments, for instance, the, you know, the standardized exams or end of end of year exams or end of semester exams? How do we look at them? How do we set up these questions so that a student cannot just use a messenger app with a friend to send, send back and forth answers? Right. So, yes, that conversation has been happening. And I think um, as a country, we know UE loves to be in the forefront of, you know, any kind of change, bringing in any kind of uh, newness or a paradigm shift. So I think from that perspective, it's, it's not shocking or surprising to us. It's, um, it's quite expected that, yes, we would want to see more of this kind of governance coming in where the clear message is we are upholding integrity. We are all about the quality of education. And we want to ensure that education is student-centric. I've got one more minute left with you. Yes. Which cheating is such a broad sort of gamut, you know, right from looking looking over somebody's shoulder during a spelling test when you're six, right. all the way up to getting somebody else to write your dissertation for you, right. which apparently you can do. Yes. <laughs> which, which, is the, which is the cheating that most concerns you? Which do you think is the most insidious? I think contract cheating. Contract cheating is when any kind of third party could be your parent, your sibling, a friend, or a third party company that actually writes assignments for you mm. because they're not no longer just writing assignments. They're giving you the you know, the, they're preparing you for an oral exam after you have submitted a thesis. They're preparing your slides. So there is very little you can do as an, as an institution to actually um, stop them because they're beyond the jurisdiction of a university or a school. Right, because it's a third-party company. Yeah, I mean, and that's why you need government yes. legislation such yes. as this. And I think a lot of the a lot of the legislation now is focusing on that aspect mm. beyond the student. Who is helping the student? Because they are, they need to understand that there is a line that cannot be crossed. You can help students. Of course, we all are here to help students. But there is a thin line between what is ethical and what is not ethical. Gosh, it's such an interesting topic. Aren't you <laughs> lucky you. to get to study it every single day? I do. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, we've just been hearing the voice of Zenith Khan, who is a board member at the European Network for Academic Integrity. She's an expert in that field, as well as in AI ethics, of course, a, 
uh, section of industry that's just going to grow and grow. And so, grow, yes, yeah, it's absolutely. Crazy. You and the of right course, field. With, with University of Wollongong, where I am the associate professor, it's, it's of course, the centre is housed there. So we, we take this very seriously uh, because we are very committed to the quality of education. Really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much Thank for Thank you time. so much for having really me. Really appreciate it. Welcome back to the show. And we are discussing today a new law that could see pupils facing fines of up to 200,000 dirhams. That is if they are caught cheating before, during or indeed after exams. And it's not just the students. Parents and teachers are covered as well. Plus... It's not just a fine. If you get convicted, you might also have to do community service for up to six months. That's either as well as the fine or potentially instead of. So what does this mean for teachers and pupils? What does it say about our educational community? Let's find out. I'm joined in the studio by consultant Fiona McKenzie, who is global head for Carfax Education. Fiona, really lovely to have you here. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much, well, tell me about um, about how big a problem this is in the industry from your perspective. You work across all sorts of different schools, pupils, branches, different countries. So you've got a great sort of overview of these things. What does it look like? I think um, I think it's really interesting that the UAE government have, have introduced this. I think it's a really proactive stance to tackle something that that is genuinely a a problem. I don't think it's any worse here than it is anywhere else in the world. Um, But I think there is significantly more pressure on the children and the students today. Um, And and parents, your parents know that their children need to get top grades, to get to a good college, uh, to kind of get the job of their dreams. And so I think the children are under a lot of pressure. And of course, in a sense, it's never been easier um, you know, you can look up an answer on your mobile phone and ping it around the classroom in seconds. Um, so I think it's a combination of factors. And I think it's really a powerful message that the government is sending out to say this is not OK. Is it typical of penalties in other countries or is it quite unusual? Um I'm not quite sure what other countries are doing specifically in the kind of financial fines. Um, but I think it's very interesting they've attached a kind of monetary value to this, mm. which is quite swinging. It's quite a, it would definitely make you think twice. But I kind of feel it's helpful for parents to know that the government's taking this stance and for the fine to be significant enough to make you think twice. Because I think there's a danger that, that cheating or, or, you know, overhelping can be normalised as if this is okay. Um, and actually what this is saying is it's not OK. Academic integrity is absolutely vital. If you lose that, then you, you lose your baseline. Um, and I feel like the government put a marker in the sand to say, and that, that then kind of bolsters schools and it bolsters uh, parents to go, actually, this isn't all right. We've, we've got to find other ways. You know, so, you've got to learn how to do it. Instead of just cutting to the answer, you've got to actually work out the process. So we've heard about how pupils feel under pressure, but what about teachers you know they are required to hit certain targets with their with their grades could they be complicit to this in some ways do you think i think there could be a temptation for teachers to be complicit i'm not saying i've never come across a teacher that is and i would always you know hope that teachers go into the profession for the most you know because they have integrity and honesty and and they want the most positive things for children and actually what they want to do is to teach children how to learn they definitely don't want to teach them how to cheat um, but I think, 
you know, with this pressure on grades, because people are so focused now on the results rather than the process, um, I could I could see why teachers would feel under pressure to do this. Um, but I would hope that the professional standards and the professional conduct that teachers are, you know, are raised in uh, would, would always be a, a hard line. Yeah, it's that um, do no harm idea with doctors, of course. Mm. You know, you'd, you'd hope that teachers would want to keep to that academic integrity that actually we were speaking about just a few minutes ago with Dr Zenith Khan. Um, Fiona, great pleasure to have you and thank you for giving us that sort of perspective, that global perspective on how cheating is seen within the industry, so to speak. Always lovely to have you in the studio. Uh, You've been listening to the voice there of Fiona McKenzie, Global Head of Education for Carfax Consultants. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. And we are discussing the current crisis in the Red Sea on the programme this morning. Now, if you were listening this time yesterday, you might be thinking, hang on a second, didn't she do that yesterday? I did. I did do it yesterday. But yesterday we were talking about domestic shipments and, and the fact that if you're sending your stuff home this summer, you need to book now. But you are going to be facing, I mean, really quite extraordinary costs. It's costing four times more than it normally does. And then this other story broke in the last 12 hours or so because um, cruise companies, global cruise companies, are rerouting or even cancelling their voyages through the Red Sea, of course, due to those rising tensions. And as a consequence, we want to look at what it means for holidaymakers, you know, but also on a serious level, the Middle East tourist economy, because you've got Royal Caribbean, MSC Cruises and Carnival Corporation um, are among the big, I mean, those are big companies altering their itineraries to avoid the area. So, for example, you've got your Swiss Italian operator, MCS Cruise. They cancelled a 21-night voyage of the MSC Opera. That was going from Dubai to Genoa in Italy. Then there was another one uh, of the Virtuosa. They were, that was going to be a 23-night journey from Dubai to Southampton in the UK. And both of those were cancelled as a consequence. To find out more, I'm joined on the line now by Daniel Essex. He is an executive and expert in the GCC cruise industry. Uh, He's a management consultant and he is head of Crystal Cruises GCC. Joining me now on Microsoft Teams. Thank you for your time, Daniel. Tell me, have you heard about a lot of cancellations then? Uh, we certainly have, and it's it's a really unfortunate situation, as I'm sure everybody can appreciate. But the cruise lines have got to put the safety of their passengers first. And therefore, any cruise ship that is really expecting to pass through the Red Sea, up through the Suez Canal, uh, in the coming coming weeks, the cruise lines have got to make that sensible decision. And in doing so, yes, they're having to cancel and reroute the ships. So it's actually, uh, you've got a number of of, of issues there. You've got three ships that you mentioned with MSC. And MSC are giving people the options as to whether or not they stay on the ship and sail around Africa. Um, But most of the people are not able to do that because of the duration of the cruises. Uh, The big question for all of these cruise lines is, you know, are we in a position that we need to compensate people? because we're making changes? Or is this more of a force majeure and therefore we've got the safety of the of the passenger at, at heart? Um, Gosh, most it's of them tricky. Are taking, it's very tricky because the legality of it is 
they don't have to give any compensation. And, you know, you mentioned MSC, but you also mentioned Carnival Corporation. Carnival Corp have got 12 ships that they're looking to reroute instead of putting it through the, the, the Suez Canal. There are other options that are being taken, and some of them are actually opting to sail their ships through without guests. So sailing the ship through without guests means that a cruise has been cancelled. <laughs> Whether it be the cruise that we're starting in Dubai or, or, or just sailing through the, the Red Sea, those cruises are being cancelled, and that has a financial impact on the cruise lines themselves. It must be so, a logistical nightmare because because of course if you don't sail home with or without passengers then you're not there to pick up the next lot for the next holiday are you so your ship's in the wrong place well the 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 point here is that the cruise lines are all attempting to get the ships to that next point the end point okay so if you talk about the ships going through the Suez canal what they're doing is they're going from asia into europe and those ships that are ending up in Europe are going to to end up, you mentioned Virtuoso in Southampton. Now, if the ship sails around Africa, um, you know, it, it can go through the Atlantic and, and it's into Southampton quite easily. The ships that may have been ending in eastern Mediterranean, like Athens or Istanbul, uh, it's a little bit more difficult. <laughs> um, and certainly the cruise lines are doing everything possible to see that their very first voyages in Europe start where they were due to start that means doing journeys around africa and not stopping or putting the ships empty through the suez canal how popular is this region for cruising at this time of the year i mean how big an impact is this going to have on the tourism industry here it's very popular but the popularity at the moment um is majority within the Gulf, not within the Red Sea. Okay. Okay. Because it's still quite cold in the Red Sea, isn't it? It's it's still quite cold in the Red Sea. I mean, Dubai hasn't exactly seen the best of weather (laughs) in the last few days. It's still better. (laughs) It's still better than England. I'm telling you, I was in England in January, freezing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who'd want to do that? Um, (laughs) But yeah, yeah, it is peak season here, isn't it, at the moment? It's peak season. You've still got ships sailing out of Dubai that are sailing around the Gulf. Those savings are not being impacted. What's being impacted is what they're doing after that. The repositioning from the Gulf, which is the winter season destination, and then going up through the Suez traditionally to get to Europe. So it's those repositioning cruises that are being impacted. Um, The only cruise line that, that had major impact or that has had a major impact within the Red Sea this year is MSC. An MSC was scheduled to cruise the winter season in the Red Sea, and that is not going ahead. I'm not surprised. I wouldn't get on that boat, that's for sure. Um, I mean, the concern is that this crisis, looking into the future, might potentially put people off booking because, you know, you know how sort of temperamental holidaymakers can be. You know, the last thing you want to hear is of any issues in the sort of maritime world. And if you do, you might prefer to stay on dry land. Are you are you concerned at, at how this could impact future bookings? At this moment in time, it, it's not a concern. Um, the concern is is more that we get peace in the region. I think that that's everybody's uh, <laughs> wish and desire. But when we talk about impacting the bookings, we're talking about an immediate situation here, okay? And time is 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 a a great healer, but also people have very short memories. 
So come the winter, when we're looking at the repositioning cruises coming back, it's not impacting um, the, the state of those, those itineraries because they're still going ahead. It's probably impacting the pace that people are booking those. So it's quite likely that if we continue and if there is a, a resolution found and we are out of the, the woods come the summer, that there's likely to be some very good offers on sailings that are going to be coming between, you know, between Europe and the Gulf or the Red Sea. Can, and you'll excuse the pun here, but can these big cruise companies take this financial loss? Will they stay afloat through this crisis? They managed to stay afloat. Those that are still here managed to stay afloat throughout the pandemic. Um, yes, they leveraged quite considerably, uh, but they've also seen, uh, you know, over the last two and a half years, there's been a, a real comeback to cruising. And the figures and the numbers that are, that are people sailing and the revenues, revenues have increased dramatically. The number of passengers has increased dramatically. We're, we're back to where we were pre-pandemic. And yes, they're going to take financial hits. I mean, you know, it's estimated if you take Carnival Corporation, who are the largest cruise entity in the world, it's estimated that this is going to knock seven to eight cents off the value of their shares. Oh, wow. OK, so, it, it, you know, it is a considerable impact for anyone involved, but but recoverable, It ho- you'd hope. We do hope. I mean, I think that the hope for the industry and the world is that this is more of a short term scenario because it's not just the Red Sea. We have to look at the wider picture. Why did it start? And, you know, even prior to the the issue within the Red Sea itself, there were quite a number of itineraries that had to be changed at the end of last year. Okay, because anything that was in the eastern Mediterranean was was including Israel within its uh, within its port of call. And so all of those itineraries had major changes as well. So the cruise industry used to having being used is used to having to be flexible. Daniel Essex, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the line to give us a bit of clarity on that story. Uh, Daniel's a cruise industry management consultant, also head of Crystal Cruises GCC. Uh, Great to have you join us on the line. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Welcome back to The Agenda, taking a look now at a very important international story that will be relevant to many people living here because tens of millions of citizens in Pakistan are due to go to the polls today in what is a deeply polarised general election. Now, the main contestants are expected to be between candidates who are backed by the former Prime Minister Imran Khan. He's currently in jail. Um, They won last time. And then there's obviously the Pakistan Muslim League. That's the party of the three-time Premier Nawaz Sharif. He is currently considered the front runner. But we also have Bilawal Bhutto Zadari, who is the 35-year-old son of the former Premier Benazir Bhutto. He's also run a very aggressive campaign. Now, unfortunately, violence has marred the election process so far. There's been many militant attacks and actually 24 people were killed in the last 24 hours alone. Joining me now to discuss the situation on the ground, the you know whether or not there's queues outside the voting areas, is Azama Malik. He's a lawyer based in Islamabad and he also serves as Global Alumni Ambassador for both the University of London and Birkbeck 
College. Azama, lovely to have you join us on the line. Now, you're based really near the parliament there. What is the atmosphere like today? Hello, Georgia. Thank you for having me. The atmosphere is kind of um, muted, but that's the case in Islamabad always. Islamabad is a city where most of the residents usually leave for their hometowns on on all kinds of holidays, including Eid. And even today, people have left for their constituencies. The ones in Islamabad, uh, mostly the voters are in different areas of uh, Islamabad. But this particular area, the one near parliament, this one is a very quiet area. So, yeah, not huge lines, but there are still people enthusiastically waiting uh, for their turn to vote. Do you think there's any risk for people who are going to the polls? Is there any chance of them being targeted by extremist groups? That is certainly possible after what happened yesterday in Balochistan, uh, multiple bombings in Kilasafullah and in Chaman and in Pishin, uh, and there were firing incidents in Chaman and in Karachi. So um, that is always a possibility, although in Islamabad, it's more remote than in certain peripheries of the Federation. But yes, that, that risk remains. Do you think, now this is a big question, especially for somebody who's in Islamabad now, but are you getting the impression that the elections are going to be free and fair? Well, elections in this country are never free and completely free and fair. Uh, last time around, uh, there were issues with Imran Khan getting elected and everyone was uh, claiming that he was supported by the military, something that the military later admitted. Um, Retired officials of the military later admitted to helping Imran Khan get elected. And I think something similar might be happening this time around as well. Um, So, yeah, that's part of the course in this country. How about expats? Because there's a huge expat population here in the UAE. Is there a facility for them to vote? Uh, unfortunately, they cannot vote unless they actually travel to their constituency in Pakistan. Uh, there is no alternative for them to vote. But yes, they are very enthusiastic, both in the UAE and in the UK. We have huge expatriate population and in Saudi Arabia as well. Of Lots course. Of Pakistanis, but it's the 100 million dirham question. Who's going to win? Or maybe it's an easy question. Um, Well, it is not that easy. But um, right now, Nawaz Sharif looks like the front runner. I mean, social media bubbles tell you that Imran Khan is the most popular politician in in this country. And that may well be true, but it's not a huge gap uh, between him and Nawaz Sharif. Nawaz Sharif's support is more sort of um, muted. They're more... Uh, Imran Khan's support is more exuberant, they're more social media savvy, but uh, Nawaz Sharif also enjoys considerable support. So that latent support uh, is going to turn out today and we'll see who wins it today. And the problem is Imran Khan does not have a party right now. His party was stripped of its election symbols. So they are all contesting as independent candidates. Even if they win, um, they will be considered independent uh, candidates. So we're not sure what will happen even if they get the most number of seats. Um, So it's going to be very interesting.
It certainly is. We will follow up with you potentially tomorrow or we might give it uh, the weekend for the dust to settle. But Azama, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the Agenda programme right here on Dubai Eye 103.8. That was Azama Malik. He's a lawyer based in Islamabad, bringing us up to date on how it feels on the ground right now as millions of people in Pakistan go to the polls. Welcome back to the show. The roads are quieter. And I don't know if you heard the business breakfast this morning, but Tom Urquhart has a theory. And if it holds weight, it's uh, the it's because the families have left already. People have already gone off on their half-term break. Um, I was going to say, if you're listening to this and you've already headed off on your half-term break, then give me a call. But I presume you're probably not listening on your holiday. But we're going to find out what the trends are this February and whether or not you could still get away if you wanted to. We all know that the UAE is the sort of the capital of last-minute booking. So joining me now to talk options is travel agent Ben Murter. He is Vice President of Sales and Business Development for Tully Luxury Travel. Ben, pleasure to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Lovely to have you here. Where are most people going this half-term? It's an interesting one. February tends to be a quieter time in terms of less adventure. People want to just relax a little bit. It goes two ways. They either want sunshine, which we have an abundance here, aside from the last few days, or they want to ski. That kind of is the breakdown of the two. So some people are going down to the Maldives, things like that. Other people like yourself, we were talking about going to Georgia or even Europe further afield. We've got some people going to Japan to ski. It's a real mixture. I hear Japan is very popular at the moment because for for once their economy is or their currency is quite weak. Yeah, and I think it's a combination. The currency is quite weak. As we were discussing previously as well, Europe is very expensive. So actually it makes places like Japan that have always kind of seemed maybe out of reach or very kind of for the upper echelons to actually a bit more approachable for everyone. Do you know, I was actually, we were looking at that currency play and it's something that we, I mean, it's, it sounds awful, but it makes a big impact on your spending. If you manage to find a country where the currency has dipped, you know, your dirhams just go a lot further, don't they? Yeah. And it's just about being mindful, isn't it? You can either pay up front and kind of do the all-inclusive kind of thing where you don't have to think about it once you get there, or you do have to be a little bit more mindful that Costs are expensive, hotels are more expensive, airfares higher. And what's your spend going to be like when you're actually there as well? If you have not planned anything for your half-term holiday, if uh, you know it's slightly crept up on you, are there still deals to be had or is everything just a bit expensive now? There's definitely availability. I think that the definition of deal depends on the client um, and what they're looking for. Um, Kind of four hours tends to be the general limit that people want to fly. It's a shorter break unless you're taking your kids out of school. So kind of Indian Ocean is always very popular. Maldives, Seychelles, Sri Lanka has been a really interesting one, actually. We've had a lot of people that are looking for kind of villas, a little bit more relaxed and offers really good value for money. Um, The hardest part is getting the flights that you want. People tend to be very specific at what times they want to leave. Those flights tend to go a little bit earlier. So as long as you have some flexibility, there's definitely availability out there for you. Where would you recommend, (laughs) as a travel 
expert who's, I mean, one of the great things about working in travel is you get to do all the trips, don't you? We do. We do. So We're jealous. blessed. We're very, very blessed. Um, I adore the Maldives. I think especially yeah. now people have come out of kind of the winter holidays. Kids have been back at school. Everyone's back at work. You want to escape and you want easy. For us, what is easier? You know, less than a four hour flight, depending on what island you go to, you could be there within six, seven hours of leaving your house. It's perfection. It's busy. So then you've got the Seychelles, which is a great option. There's also some great hotels within the UAE or closer to home like Oman and Bahrain. There are People might overlook them because it's so similar to here, but it's still a vacation. You still get to go. You don't have to worry about things you'd worry about at home. And you get some great, great value as well with a one or two hour flight time. Yeah, that's very appealing, actually, especially if you've got the younger children and you don't want to fly far. Is there a way of doing the Maldives on a budget, though? Because I think it always works out. When I've looked, it always seems quite, quite pricey. Maybe I'm looking at the wrong hotels. I mean, it's a variation. There's a huge number of properties in the Maldives um, where they are. Their proximity to Malé, the airport as well, has a big impact. If you're a family of four and you're looking at hotels that you need a seaplane to go to, that can sometimes add a couple of thousand dollars, if not more. Um, a lot of the resorts now do great family offerings where they do discounted or even free child places and things like that. I think it's about just being mindful of what's important for you out of your trip. What are the top three things? Is it a kids club? Is it a separate bedroom for the children? Is it all three? Is it gourmet restaurants? And then breaking it down and looking at what options because within an hour of a, within a speedboat, you've probably got 20 good family resorts from a range of prices and a range of ball basis as well. So it's just getting out there and doing your research. Ben, a pleasure to have you join us Thank in the you studio. So much. Really good stuff. And of course, lots of people, I hope you've given you ideas of places that you can go uh, for your half term break, if indeed you're taking a few days off. Um, you've been listening to the voice of Ben Murta. He is Vice President of Sales and Business Development for Tully Luxury Travel. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, good to have you here. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Right, I've got a little bit of uh, music to play you. Have a listen to this. So that song is called Gong Si, and it is a song that is very commonly sung in China to mark the Lunar New Year. And I'm playing it today because the largest annual human migration is well underway over in China. Millions of people are making their journey back to their hometowns. This weekend, it is Chinese New Year. Now, traditionally, the lunar holiday is the one where pretty much everyone takes a break. You know, in some situations, it's the only break they take all year. But sadly, uh, they've seen unseasonable snowstorms. There's also been freezing rain. And they have disrupted transportation in large parts of the country, leading to hundreds of flights and train services being cancelled and delayed. Some motorists were even stranded on frozen highways for days. A little earlier, I spoke to Ina Tangen. He's a senior fellow at the Tahe Institute and the founder of Asia Narratives. And he explained that there are just, I mean, there is just a staggering number of people who are on the move. We're talking uh, monumental figures, you know, in 9 billion trips in 40 days, 80% by the road, 4.7 billion in 2023. So that's roughly double the amount of last year. 
480 million people are going to travel by train, 80 million by plane. You know, 80 million represents one fifth of the total air traffic of the United States in a year. So, you know, the, the numbers are, are incredible. Right now, about half the cities in China are below zero and half are above. There was some extreme cold and some snow, especially in Wuhan. These are areas that don't really get a lot of snow. So getting blanketed is tough, but, you know, this is happening all over the world. And so, yeah, it's disheartening to see people waiting by the side of the road, but they've apparently cleared it up very quickly. They even used the PLA, People's Liberation Army, uh, to go and unbury roads and help people and this type of thing. So it's temporary. So hopefully everyone will get to where they need to go by the time they need to be there. Yeah, did it cause delays on uh, to airports and things like that, this unexpected dump of snow? Oh, absolutely. But it's not just that. I mean, you know, as I was telling you, the numbers are staggering, literally double the number of people are migrating this year as opposed to last year. Obviously, last year was all, all about COVID and things like this. But, you know, when you start adding on that capacity, I mean, this, this is far greater uh, than the traffic in 2019, you know, when things were, quote, normal. Uh, Air China, they added 1,700 flights per day more, which is 32% higher than they had in 2019. Just to give you a kind of an idea of, of the uh, magnitude of this, I mean, the number of fast rail and road, everything is, is up. So no matter, even the, the weather had been fine, there still would have been some delays, traffic backups and things like that. I remember I've been here since 2005 and have been observing this. There's always uh, something that comes up, accidents or bad weather. And uh, this year, it's just more extreme because of the number of people traveling. Why are so many people traveling? I mean, I get that it's a festival, but, but why, where are they going? Is this a reflection of how many people have moved to the cities for work, basically? No, not really. I mean, actually, the, there are a large number of uh, people who are moving uh, back to the smaller cities uh, to enjoy a, a different quality of life. This is simply a lot of pent-up demand. I mean, you know, for three, three years, it was very difficult to get back home. So this year, I think, is going to stand out in terms of the number of people renewing family ties. In China, you can say, where do you live? And they'll say Beijing, Shanghai, or wherever. And then they say, where are you from? Well, I'm from a small city city in Wuhan or Heilongjiang or something like that. And these ties are very, very important. Uh, family is basically number one in China. So going back and being with a family, sometimes it's painful, especially if they keep demanding, where's the husband or wife? <laughs> where's the child we want to see? How much do you earn? You look a little fat. I mean, you, you get the full gamut of uh, inquisition when you go back as a young person. But this is part of the Chinese culture, kind of like, uh, you know, salmon. They, they, they return to where they spawned. And do people tend to take the whole month off or is it just a few days and they, and they travel back? Well, it can be staggered. I mean, the, the main point is this New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and the days following. Officially, there's only eight-day holiday, but people will tend to take much longer. For instance, migrant workers, those who used to come and you know, flock to the cities, they, they would basically work for 11 uh, months of the year and then spend a month or even more back in their hometowns after you know working basically almost every day. How about international travel because of course here in the UAE we are more than happy to welcome any 
Chinese tourists who might want to come on holiday. In fact, we've been missing them here. I think the economy uh, would be very grateful to, to any renimbis coming our way. Is international travel more of a reality now? Oh, absolutely. I'm, and right now, I'm because of Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Netherlands have all been granted visa-free status. So that means that people can just basically get their uh, visa at the airport. So they're seeing a sharp uptick in the number of travel, especially in Southeast Asia. A, it's warm. <laughs> and when it's cold in, in China, warm sounds really nice. And, you know, it, for instance, it's 2,500 additional flights to Southeast Asia per day have been scheduled. Last year, even in 2023, Chinese tourists spent a whopping two $225 billion. If that doubles, there's going to be a lot of very happy tourist businesses out there. They really need this kind of boon. This is the kind of thing that can spark economies. UAE is definitely on the radar. I hear from many, many people, much to the delight of your ambassador here, that you know they want to know what's it like and when, when they should go and things like that. And I always tell them, this is the time of year to do it. It's beautiful weather in Dubai. It certainly is. Ina Tangan there, senior fellow at the Tahe Institute and founder of the Asia Narratives. He speaks there of beautiful weather. And indeed, at the moment, it is glorious out there. But worth mentioning that as of Sunday, we are expecting a spate of storms. And that is something that we will be talking about on our show tomorrow morning. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.